you to pray with me as we begin. Father, we do thank you for all of these partners that you've opened doors uh, unto us for us to be involved in greater ways outside of ourselves and our immediate neighborhoods. And Lord, we especially pray for Dr. McMillan as she leads uh, Blue Mountain College, and we pray for Nancy, and we, we just, Lord, pray you give them wisdom and faith, and Lord, we pray that you, you would just move in new ways on, on that campus, that there would just be a, a sense of your presence there that is strong, and these international students, we pray that their time here would expose them to the Gospels, that they would meet uh, meet you, Lord, in the scriptures. And so we pray for that. And just, God, just use us as Hillcrest Baptist Church to have greater impact, more impact, steady impact, Lord, at Blue Mountain. And so we pray you'd speak and you'd guide us and equip us. And bless your word now as we look to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Several years ago, uh, Christian, some Christian educators at... Uh, who work at Lifeway Press in Nashville came up with the idea of a new kind of curriculum for children. Uh, some of you may have heard it. It's called the Gospel Project. Anybody? The purpose of that curriculum was to help little children see that in every Bible study, every story, every narrative and lesson that Jesus is the central figure. That Jesus is the theme of the entire Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, every thread that runs through every book is about Christ. So, God's purpose through his word was to reveal that theme to us, for us to understand. And his purpose and plan was the gospel, his, to spread that gospel, and you and I are his personnel. We've been commanded to make disciples, to baptize, to teach from the scriptures, and we've received the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses so that as we go, we're demonstrating, revealing Christ, even to the nations. God has a mission. He is a missional God. He sent his son and he said to his disciples, even as the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. You know the verse from Acts 1.8, you are my witnesses. Moving from Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even to the, to the nations. And so the great commission begins with go, and it's a preposition, as you go, as you live, as you move, as you go to be my ambassadors to live on mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 provides a biblical definition of the gospel where Paul said, I declare to you the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And sometimes we can think about the death, the burial and resurrection of Christ. That certainly is the gospel. That's the message that has been given to us to share as we go, but sometimes we forget that little phrase in 1 Corinthians there, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. You remember after Jesus uh, died on the cross and he was buried and raised, 
Before he ascended back to the Father in heaven, he made appearances to his disciples. He did that for 40 days, and he taught them in each occurrence, the Bible says, according to the scriptures. He appeared and taught them according to the scriptures. And it says even more specifically, he taught them from the law, he taught them from the Psalms, and he taught them from the prophets. The Old Testament was their scriptures. And he revealed in all of those teachings from the law, from the prophets, from the Psalms, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. All of it was foretold. If you have your Bible, I invite you to go with me to Luke chapter 24. Remember we saw this last Sunday, Jesus appeared to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. And starting in Luke 24 at verse uh, 25, and I'm not going to read through this entire text like we did Sunday, but just look at verse 25 and 26 again with me. Jesus again had appeared to the disciples, these two traveling from Jerusalem on to the road to Emmaus, and he said to them in verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Taught them, what does it say? From the law of Moses and from the prophets. From the scriptures, things concerning himself. Now look at verse 32. After Jesus departs from them, they say, this is their response to seeing Jesus in the scriptures, they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? In other words, our hearts were inspired. They were moved as Jesus taught them from the scriptures. Look at verses 33 through 35. This is the response. So they rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together they begin to say, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Later in that same chapter, starting at verse 44, Jesus appears to a larger group of disciples, his apostles that were still in Jerusalem, they were locked up in that upper room. The Bible says they were full of fear, trying to make sense of everything that had happened. Read with me starting at verse 44. And Jesus said to them, so he appears, are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me? And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it was written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power. And Luke goes on to 
record their response once Jesus leaves them. Look at verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Did you catch what these disciples do after Jesus leaves? Uh, those two on the road to Emmaus, they go back and they begin to share. It says they're full of joy and gladness. They'd seen Christ alive. They understood the scriptures, and so they begin to share it. Here, as Jesus appears to this larger group, once Jesus leaves, they too begin to worship. And the Bible says they're full of joy, and they're continually praising God, giving him glory. During Jesus' post-resurrection appearance, he was setting an example and I believe an example for his disciples then, and he was setting an example for us today, that men and women from that time forth would meet Christ where? In the scriptures. They would meet Christ. They would know God according to the scriptures. That's where you and I met him, through the gospel, according to the scriptures. So God's plan from Genesis all the way through has been the gospel. His purpose was to spread that gospel for it to be known to all nations, for his glory to be worshiped, which is exactly what we see happening in the text right at the start. John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. So we live to worship him and to make him known. That's your mission. That's my mission. You say, well, how do you know that's my mission? Well, I can just say that from the authority of scripture. The Bible says that the mission of every Christian is to make God known, to advance his glory, and we do so through the gospel. We are his personnel, empowered by his spirit to that very end. The reason I asked Miss Nancy Grisham and Dr. McMillan about the nations, if you think about this, within a 15-minute drive, God is bringing the nations to us, to our doorsteps. And it's important that we as a church leverage that. We look for ways to, to partner with God, to work with God in what he is doing to make the gospel known. And there's more things going on there in, in and through the life of the church than probably all of us recognize. I want to spend the remaining of our time together doing what Jesus did. I want you to invite your Bible to open your Bible with me, and I want you to go back with me to the law, to the, to the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, sometimes known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. And I want to just take a, a few moments and walk through five books of the Bible. I know that you, some of you think, thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to be here all day. I'd like to be here all day doing this. But I just take a few minutes and I want us to think about what Jesus did. 
He met with his disciples. He met with his followers after he was raised from the dead. And the Bible is clear. He taught them from the law. And then he taught them from the prophets. And he taught them from the Psalms concerning himself. And so just this morning, as we look to the law, I just want to invite you to buckle up. I'm going to move fast. And so I'm going to move fast. If you will listen fast with one objective. And that objective is that you and I would see Jesus in the law. That we would see Jesus in Genesis. We'd see Jesus in Exodus. We'd see Jesus in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so for just for a few minutes, I invite you to fly through with me. Genesis. The very first chapter in the Bible is the foundation for all scripture. Genesis 1.1 declares, you know this verse, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke and it was all done. It was all created. God's word is central to his mission right from the start. John or Genesis 1.1 sounds like John 1.1, doesn't it? You say, well, what is John 1.1? Well, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John is saying, when he says the word, he's referring to a Greek word, logos, and it's a word that refers to Christ. In the beginning was the logos, the word, who was and is Jesus. So it could read, John 1, 1 could read, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. John also goes on in that prologue of chapter 1 to say, Jesus was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, Jesus, nothing was made that was made. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him. That's what Scripture says. So in the very first verses of Genesis, the law of God begins with Jesus. Theologically, Genesis 1-1 could be interpreted to read this way, in the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth, and he spoke it all into existence. That's according to John 1. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples on the road to Amazus, or in this upper room group, and he taught them concerning himself from the law. It's likely that he taught them that he was the creator. He created the heavens and the earth, that he was the one who spoke everything into existence. Genesis 1, 27 said, God created man in his what? In his own image. In the image of God, he created him, mankind, male and female, he created them in his image. That points to Colossians 1, 15, that Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. Jesus is the perfect image of God. John 14, 9 says, Jesus said, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen God, has seen the Father. We all know from Romans 8, 29 that God's mission includes that all of us be conformed to the image of Christ. The law of Moses states that after six days of creation, on the seventh day, the Sabbath, God rests. Jesus could have easily explained to his disciples what we know from Hebrews, that God's mission is for all of us to enter into a rest 
an eternal rest that has been achieved through the resurrection of Christ. Hebrews 4.3 says, For we have believed in Christ who obey his word and have entered into his rest. In the law, Genesis 2.8, God places this first man, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, a place of paradise. And in the garden, if you remember, there are two trees, unlike all of the other trees. They're different. The first tree is the tree of life. The second tree is the tree with the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells man, you may eat from every tree in the garden freely, all that you want. But from the tree of the knowledge with good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die in that day. God then works to fashion a woman from man's rib and brings her to the man. And the first marriage occurs as God the Father gives the woman to the man and he says, it's good. In the law, in Genesis 3, the serpent was the most cunning of all God's creation and tempted the woman. And the man, the Bible says, Adam was with her. The temptation was to question God's law, to doubt it with the goal to produce disobedience to it. Therefore, choosing to disregard God and seeking to be like God, deciding what is good and evil for themselves, Adam and Eve took from the tree with the knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes were opened, and they knew they had sinned against God, and they were ashamed. What did they try to do in their shame? They tried to cover themselves. They tried to hide their sins, and they tried to remove themselves from God's presence. That's our natural inclination as well, left to ourselves. We try to hide our sins, to cover them up, and to withdraw from God's presence. You want to know why a lot of people who, who believe in God and really believe the gospel, but they want to stay out of church, they don't want to be there, because the light exposes darkness. And produces feelings of uncomfortableness to be under the word of God instead of trying to withdraw. Once the man, the Adam, Adam and the woman Eve yield to the temptations of the serpent and disobey God's word, the Bible says sin enters into the world. God, knowing they sinned, had sinned, violating his law, confronted them and did what? He cursed the serpent first. And then he said, the Bible says he placed enmity and strife between the woman and all of her future seed, all of her future offspring, which included the one who would come in the future who would be bruised but would also bruise. You see that first couple of chapters of Genesis all foreshadow Jesus. Once Adam and Eve sinned, and sin entered into the relationship. The law says in Genesis 3, 21, what did God do? He confronts them. But then think about this act of grace. In Genesis 3, 21, God said, the Bible says that God made for them tunics of skins and clothed them. That's grace. The life of an animal was taken or animals and blood was shed, providing a covering for them, certainly pointing to Jesus and his shed blood that would be poured out for us on the cross. And as a punishment for Adam and Eve's sin, what happened next? Then they were removed from paradise. 
They were commanded. They had to leave the garden. Why is that significant? Because once they were removed from the garden, they lost access to the other tree, the tree of life. It is a reference to once they ate, and you remember the Bible says, in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. That day they were removed from the tree of life. These scriptures from the law make it obvious that physical death came as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. But Christ, you remember, in Romans 5 explains himself as the second Adam who had come to bring life, a restored life and fellowship with God. And in this life now, but also in life to come to bring those who had fallen into sin back into paradise. That's our hope, right? Once we die to spend eternity with God in heaven, God's mission included the Lord Jesus Christ opening the way to eternal life, removing the barrier of sin. Do you remember Jesus told his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There's no other way but by me to paradise, to heaven. Jesus being the woman's seed foretold in Genesis 3.15 on the cross was bruised by Satan, bruised on the cross, but not destroyed. And on the cross, Jesus bruised the head of the serpent, inflicting a decisive defeat on Satan. Jesus may have taught his disciples what would be recorded in Hebrews 2.14, that through his death, he has defeated the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. In Genesis chapter 5, the law tells about a man named Enoch. And in verse 24, he walked with God. And then it says, Enoch was not, but God took him. We know from Hebrews 11:5 that Enoch did not die. He did not taste death. Why? Because he pleased God through faith. In Genesis, the life of Enoch points us to Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Enoch points to Jesus. We are saved from physical death. We're saved from eternal separation from God by his life and resurrection through faith in Christ. Consider Genesis 6. The choir sang about it. Genesis 6 tells about a man who lived among sinful men. In fact, they were so sinful, God decided to pour out his wrath and judgment. And in verse 7, it says to destroy everyone alive. But there was a man who believed God, who lived by faith and found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And without any rain in sight, When God told him to build the ark, he built the ark exactly as God said. And God told Noah, I'm establishing a covenant with you. And when the flood came, Noah, by his righteous life and faith, was saved. And not only was he saved, but his entire family was saved. Maybe Jesus taught his disciples about Noah and how Noah pointed to him. That through his perfect righteousness and faith, his life was given also to establish a new covenant by faith in him that all might inherit eternal life and be saved. Then after the flood, there was a new earth. 
after the flood, you see, prefigures the creation of a new heaven and a new earth described in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. In Genesis chapter 12, the law of Moses details God's call to Abram. And he says to Abram, go. Sounds like the Great Commission. Go. Go from the land where you are to the land that I have prepared for you, and I will make you into a great nation and bless you, and you shall be a blessing to all other families, to all other nations of the earth, and shall be blessed. Sounds to me like God has a plan. His purpose is for his people to go and make disciples and be a blessing to the nations. You and I have been empowered with his presence to share the gospel. I wonder when Jesus taught his disciples from the law, if he taught them about Abram's commission and that this was God's plan from the beginning of time and then now they were to go and live on mission and to be a blessing to the nations and to make him known about the law describing the scripture recorded in Genesis 22. Abraham, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son Isaac because of his faith. He believed that God, even if he took his son's life, that God had the power to raise him from the dead. But a lamb was provided as a sacrifice in his place. God's mission included sacrificing his only son as the perfect of perfect lamb. You remember when John the Baptist first saw Jesus enter on the scene? He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That's referring to the nations. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What about Genesis 37? A young man by the name of Joseph is introduced. A young man who suffered greatly but was used by God. And he forgave those who hurt him to serve as a deliverer for his own family, but also as a deliverer for the nations. Maybe Jesus taught his disciples that Joseph's life prefigured his life. That like Joseph, he had also come to suffer and to give his life, to make God's forgiveness available, to deliver us from our sins. Every passage in the book of Genesis points to Christ. What about Exodus? Moses is described as a great deliverer. As a baby, his life was preserved. You remember a political decree went forth that all Hebrew baby boys should be destroyed. Moses was a man whom God had called and prepared to rescue those who were enslaved, suffering in bondage. God demonstrated his glory through Moses' life as God's people were delivered to go to a land that had been prepared for them. Jesus must have taught his disciples of his own infancy. Do you remember the decree, political decree from Herod that all baby boys were to be slaughtered? Moses' life points to Jesus. Or of God's call upon his life to serve. You remember Mark 10? 
45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to be a deliverer for others. Moses' prayers of intercession for God's people point to Jesus' great intercessory prayer in John 17. Hebrews 7, 25 says of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to pray, to make intercession for us. I want to just read very quickly to you from John 17. This is Jesus' prayer. It's an intercessory prayer. John 17, starting at verse 9. Father, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All of them are mine, are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I, have, I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Father, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Sanctify them by the scriptures. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Sounds like God's call to Abram. Surely Jesus taught his disciples from the scriptures that he was their deliverer. Exodus chapter 3, the law explains that when God calls Moses, he tells Moses, I want you to know my name. Do you remember what his name was? When you go to Pharaoh and you go to my people, tell them that I am, I am has sent you. I am who I am. Surely Jesus reminded his disciples from John 8, 58, do you guys remember when I said to you before Abraham was, I am. What he's saying to his disciples is whatever you brothers need, that's who I am. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the resurrection and life. And when God delivered his people from bondage, that final plague was that of death. You remember? Any household that smeared the blood of the lamb over the doorway to their home would be saved, delivered from the angel of death. And Jesus, on the night of his death, gathered with his disciples to observe that Passover meal. And he told his disciples, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He must have taught his disciples what we know from 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Purge out the old leaven of your life that you may be new since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Jesus said, I am your Passover who was sacrificed for you. When God's people are wandering in the wilderness without any water, dying of thirst, Moses strikes the rock and water comes forth. 
I wonder if Jesus showed them from Exodus 17 and taught them that I was also stricken, stricken to provide life for you. And whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst, for the water that I shall give will become in them a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Or as John 7 records, records on the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and declared with a loud voice, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Surely Exodus 17, water from the rock, points to Jesus who gives life. What about the tabernacle in Exodus 25? The law describes the building of a special place, a place where God would dwell with his people. And whenever they moved, that tabernacle was moved with them. And inside the tabernacle was the holy place where only the high priest could enter on the day of atonement. Do you think Jesus taught his disciples, I am that tabernacle? Do you think they understood John 1:14? And it says, then the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That word and dwelt among us literally is transla translated tabernacled. That I became flesh and tabernacled among my people that they might see you and know your glory. That special holy place inside the tabernacle, inside the temple eventually was limited to, for only the high priest who once a year would offer sacrifice for his people, who points to a great high priest who offered a final perfect sacrifice, a sacrifice that would satisfy God's justice, eliminating all other sacrifices. Listen, aren't you glad this morning that God doesn't require sacrifices from us? What did he say in the Psalms? He said, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken and a contrite spirit. That is what God will never turn away. Jesus may have taught his disciples, seeing then you have a great high priest, Jesus, the son of God, who has passed through the heavens. Hold fast to your confession or your profession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who is tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. A perfect high priest. Jesus taught his disciples from the scriptures to bolster their faith to help them to understand God's mission. And what about Leviticus? Leviticus demonstrates how God's people are to worship and how to live. Leviticus 19, God demands, you shall be holy for I am holy. How many of you are keeping that commandment? Leviticus 19, the book of Leviticus is about offerings and sacrifices and it's about the establishment of the priesthood and it's about laws for living holy lives, laws concerning what is clean and unclean. It's about feasts and celebration and giving thanks to God. All of it points to the holiness of Jesus Christ. That perfect priest and to his great sacrifice for us. Hebrews 7 tells us the old priesthood is no longer necessary. And as I studied and prayed and prepared thinking about this, I was pointed to Hebrews chapter 10. And as I read this passage of scripture, I said literally, literally just cried and just wept over this. 
to begin to think and contemplate Jesus Christ being our great priest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, and I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. And then so he says this, therefore Christians having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is through his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day drawing near. What a priest we have in Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples from Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. His people were in numbers are on a journey to a new land. All the tribes were organized with the tabernacle in front, symbolizing that God was to lead. His presence was there to guide them, certainly pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his presence, to the Holy Spirit to guide us and to guide us into truth. What about Deuteronomy full of laws given to Moses by God, and they finally get into the land, and the idea in Deuteronomy is God gives instructions to his people on how they are to live. And if they'll obey, they'll obey his laws and keep his commands, he'll bless them. But if they decide to reject God's laws and forsake his teachings, then expect God's discipline because he loves them. Remember this, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love him with all of your heart and your soul and your strength. Certainly sounds like a question that was posed to Jesus, what's the most important command in the law? And he said, love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength, and learn to love people as you do yourself. Let me close. Jesus taught his disciples from the scriptures concerning himself, and he started with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Every verse, every story points to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the Old Testament stories of Abraham and Isaac and Noah and Daniel and whoever is else there, they're not just random stories. They're all connected. They're all woven together with a central idea that God is a missional God and he has a plan and his plan has never changed. His plan has always been the gospel. He sent Jesus who revealed his glory, been revealed to us in the scriptures and now the Lord Jesus has sent us to make him known. You are God's personnel. We're it. Missions exists because worship does not. I want to challenge all of us as a church with this one thing. To adopt a new way of looking at your life. And you never hear anything else that I ever say in this pulpit. I hope that you'll hear this. That you'll learn to think differently about your life. Your life is not about you. It's not about how much money you make or don't make or where you live or don't live or what you do for a job or what kind of vehicle to drive or how your kids are or where they go to school or where they go to college and how they're dressed and how they look and about ball games and clubs and all this other stuff. All of that has its place, but that's not the heart of why we live. I would challenge you to live, to learn to think every day when I wake up in the morning and I draw my first breath and my eyes open, when my feet hit the floor, my mission today is to represent God. My mission today is to represent Jesus. My mission today is to bring him glory in my marriage, in my family, in my studies, in my occupation, in my relationships, is to bring the Lord Jesus Christ glory in every area of my life and to extend it. God, use my life to extend your glory, to make Christ known. And so as I go to work, or as I go to school, as I study, as I read, whatever I do, everything has a theme, everything has a purpose, a foundation that undergirds it and supports it, and it's to glorify Christ. Let me say this to you. Some of your marriages would change if you changed the way you thought and thought my purpose in this marriage, God, is to bring you glory in my relationship with my spouse. It would change. Everything would change in life when we understand that I have a purpose, that I have a mission, and it's to represent God and to bring him glory. Everything changes. I'm going to tell you something. It would change the church. It would change our church. God matters. Loving God matters. Worshiping him. And listen, every person matters. I'm going to say this to you. I know I'm going long. Every person on your Sunday school role matters. They represent people for whom Christ died, and it matters. It's not just irrelevant if they're there or not there. They matter. And we're called uh, to, to love and to reach out and to share with others. Let me, let me close. I'm going to ask our deacons to come. Our benediction this morning will be to take the bread and the cup together. It's, it's a reminder, isn't it? It's a physical reminder to remember Jesus, to remember who he is and what he did for us at the cross, and to remember that he's with us, and he's coming again for us.
And so as the deacons come, I invite you to pray with me. Father, in these closing moments, we remember our minds are on you. And God, we are sinners saved by your grace through faith. And God, we're so unworthy. So unworthy for the great sacrifice that you made for us. But God, by your grace, by your grace, would you empower us to live today and tomorrow and every day this week? Guided by your spirit, empowered by your spirit to represent you in our home, in the workplace, and wherever we go to advance your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know Christ, we'd encourage you to take the bread and the cup with us, and after we've all been served, we'll take it together as a sign of unity. So you come this morning and uh, as we're served.